Well, good afternoon. Thank you for attending this session on the Legacy Standard Bible. I know it's just a minute early, but everyone's here early anyways, and we can use all the time that we can get because we're all just really long-winded. No, we're delighted you're here, and I know that everyone here and everyone is familiar by now with the fact that there is a new translation out. It is a revision of the New American Standard, and that is the Legacy Standard Bible meant to preserve and to advance and push forward the notion of being a window into the original text. And we're familiar with the changes of Lord back to the original articulation as Yahweh. We're we're familiar with the usage of doulos as slave and even uh, having consistency of that in the Old Testament. I think we're familiar with these features and why they matter. But here we are in front of preachers in front of pastors, in front of teachers. And so what this session, I desire this session to emphasize, and I think what we agreed it should emphasize, is how the LSB enhances our preaching and teaching. And so, Pastor John, I don't think anyone could speak better on why a Bible translation, a good Bible translation matters for exposition than you. So please just lead us off with that. All translation tends toward the reader. Translators are thinking, how will the reader see this? We're only thinking one thing, how did the author see this? This goes back, this goes completely against the grain of the all trends in translation. And even in the new NAS 2020, there were reader-oriented translations, which are completely irrelevant. The gap between the text and the reader is the preacher, not the translator. So those were the, if you're going to have a tool to, to exposit Scripture, you, you better have the best possible window into the original text, and that's what, what this is. And these were the translators, but how many men were actually involved in reading and making suggestions? And About 60. About 60. So on the outside, they were checking, and there would be weekends. Abner tell me when he would get 1,000 suggestions on one weekend. So they were they were really careful in working through all of this. Uh, it's a, it's a monumental thing. I don't think a translation's ever been done by one faculty, and that's why they could do it in a year, because they weren't having to concede to each other because their theology differed, and also they all had to live through COVID, and that locked them all down so they couldn't go anywhere. So. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. Thank you, Pastor John. I think. We are trying to be this window into the text, and I think what we've asked every translator to do is just to give illustration to that that would edify you all and illustrate how this is a sharp tool in the toolbox. So, Dr. Varner, I know that in your own personal study right now, these, these aren't necessarily just things you had pre-planned in going through the LSB, but actually teaching from it, you found very helpful of, of how words are distinguished in the translation. Can you elaborate on that for yeah, us? I'm teaching a course in Revelation, and some of you have been bold enough to preach through Revelation. And, and uh, wow, you, you see these uh, 24 elders with crowns on their heads. And uh, remember that that's not a kingly crown. That's a victor's crown. It's a Stephanos. Uh, and, uh, but then you get to Revelation 19, and you see Jesus with crowns on his heads. But it's not the same crown. 
Uh, it's uh, not Stephanos, but diadema, from which we get the word diadem. And so, um, uh, actually, the NASB distinguished between those uh, and said it's crowns on the heads of the 24 elders, but diadems on the head of, head of our Lord Jesus, and then they switched it. It's now crowns, crowns. You can't tell the difference between the victor's crown on the 24 elders and the diadems on the head of our Lord Jesus in Revelation 19. I want to tell you, Dr. Robert Thomas is turning over in his grave. You know, uh, I know that's not good theology, uh, Pastor John, but but uh, <laughs> but you get my point. You get my point. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Thomas was on the NASB, and he wrote a commentary on Revelation, and he distinguished between those two, and the Greek does too. So it's diadems on the head of the Lord Jesus, not the victor's crown, but the the uh, royal crown. And then I think of uh, I was just teaching the other day and. There's two words that are translated oftentimes temple. One is naos and one is heron. And the naos is the sanctuary, the inner court of the temple. Whereas the word heron can be the old, the whole temple, all right? And I'm teaching this. And uh, Revelation 11, 1 says, Then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me. Get up and measure, I'm reading from the LSB, the sanctuary of God and the altar. That's the inner part of the temple, where the sacrificial area was, where the holy place was, where the holy of holies. That's the sanctuary. The larger area is the temple. All right, now watch this. Those who worship in it, and leave out the court which is outside the sanctuary. Amen. That court is the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, the court that our Lord Jesus cleansed uh, during uh, Passion Week. But if you translated it all as temple, listen to this, leave out the court which is outside the temple. The court is part of the temple. And, uh, you know, not distinguishing between these two words, naas, the inner sanctuary, and the outer court, which is the temple itself, confuses the passage. As a matter of fact, the translators ought to know Herod's temple, ought to know the outside part of the temple and the inside the sanctuary. So that just came alive to me in teaching the book of Revelation. Um, we made a distinction between sanctuary and temple. And guess what? The Holy Spirit who lives within us, you are the sanctuary of God. That's, that's the inner part of the temple where the Spirit of God dwelt. Just one more in passing. We've all looked at 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God. And how many of you said, well, this is literally breathed out by God? Well, if it's literally breathed out with God, why don't we translate it, breathed out by God? Guess what we did, okay? So you don't have to, as you're preaching through 2 Timothy 3.16, say, well, the Greek is literally breathed out by God because we translated it that way. All Scripture is breathed by God. So, uh, you know, it's an insight into the original text. It's got to be that. And if we can help you... uh, with a, a rendering that is faithful to that original Hebrew or Greek, our time was well spent. And that's the principle. We're not making changes just because we feel like it. We are making changes to match what is in the text. It's like Simon says. If the text says there's two different Greek words, then you better have two different English terms to correspond to that. Paul, you're next to Dr. Varner. Give us give us some insights on, on your on your mind. 
So just picking up on that, early on, a principle that we landed on was as far as possible, we would have one English word per lexeme in the original language and be consistent. And consistency was something that we tried to major on. And I believe what that does for the preacher is it facilitates biblical theology. That's one of the the advantages to doing this. You start to see themes and motifs as they permeate throughout all of Scripture by virtue of the consistency in the English translation. So in Genesis, just by way of example, the word seed is there everywhere. It's there an inordinate number of times compared to the rest of the occurrences within the Pentateuch. It is a very definite theme within that first book because the first book is oriented towards tracing out the line of the promised seed. And you start to see that because it's not translated by other synonymous words such as offspring or children or or other options. You start to see that emphasis within Genesis. But it then crosses over from Genesis into the rest of the Old Testament and is even picked up by the New Testament authors. So as Paul now starts to use the language of seed, there, there is very clearly within the translation a definite connection that he's making to the messianic hope of the Old Testament He's reaching on that and saying Christ is the fulfillment. And it's just that, that principle of consistency that starts to facilitate biblical theology. Mark? I'll just continue down that path of a biblical theology and give you another example. So image, and uh, you might have heard this before, but the idea of image from Genesis 1, and 27, right? God made man in his image. So that becomes a significant theme. And once in a while, that word reappears in the NASB and some other translations. You move to Daniel 3. Uh, well, actually, first Daniel um, 2, 31, where Nebuchadnezzar sees a dream. And in the Hebrew, it's the same word, it's Selim, right? The image from Genesis 1, 26, 27, the term reappears in Daniel 2, 31, where he sees a great statue in the NASB. But it's Selim, it should say a great image. And then you move to chapter 3. In verse 1, he makes an image of gold. And then in verse 19, it says the expression of his face changed, but really the expression of his image changed. And if you begin to connect it theologically back to Genesis 1, so God makes man and women in his image, you have Nebuchadnezzar creating a statue, an image, in, the, in, the, in, in his own image, essentially taking, replacing God, let me just say it that way taking on a position where only God belongs and demanding people to worship him, right? We went from chapter 3. Then you skip forward to the New Testament. You think about Romans 1.23, where instead of worshiping the creator, they worshiped an image of creation. And so now again, worship reappears in this idea. And then you think of Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the only one who should be worshiped, or 2 Corinthians 4.6, right? We see in the face of Christ, we see the image or the glory of God, but in the image. And so you take that idea of the image of God being hijacked by Nebuchadnezzar, but you wouldn't make those connections in Daniel 2 and 3 unless you translated the same word in all three of those passages, 231, 319, as image. And it just further reinforces this, the reading that you begin to make some uh, links, and hopefully that helps your people to understand who should be worshipped. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is to be worshipped. In the New Testament, God says, now worship Jesus Christ. And he's the only and the true image of God. Yeah, along that line, sometimes people ask me, why 
did the New Testament authors translate Yahweh as Kyrios, as Lord. And what you're pointing out, Mark, is actually reinforced if you see the shift of translation, if you see the shift of word usage. Yes, Yahweh is used in the Old Testament, but then now Old Testament texts are translated in the New Testament by the word Lord. And they are deliberate, for example, in Acts 2, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, and now you know Jesus Christ is Lord. It's tic-tac-toe, three in a row. All lords are the same. The Lord that is the Lord of David is the Lord that is Yahweh, which is the Lord that is Jesus. And they're making a very deliberate statement by that to connect Yahweh with Christ, with Jesus. And so with the word of length, with image, it connects a biblical theology. And when you do a translation consistently based upon what is original, it actually brings out why the author does what he does, and that actually emphasizes, in this specific case, the deity of Christ all the way through. And you can see some of that in the Septuagint as well, whether yeah. it's Kurias or, in my example, Icon. If you look that up in the Septuagint, Daniel, you'll see it. Icon then reappears in the New Testament. So even the, you know, the, the translators into the Septuagint saw the same connections. You know, obviously, it's hypothetical. We're, we're hypothesizing here, but you would hope that they were beginning to make the same links as they were translating from the Hebrew into the Greek. Jason, talk to us about some examples. Yeah, sure. Um, as uh, as I think Dr. MacArthur kind of worked worked us through in the sense of um, consistency, and I, I think even modern trends towards translations. One one thing that came to mind as as I was thinking through the, uh, some examples um, is found in First Peter, and and that is we deliberately chose to go against the grain of the culture by translating phobos as fear, which doesn't sound like a big deal, right? Um, phobia, fear, makes sense. Um, but it gets a little bit challenging when you get into some specific texts. Like, for instance, First um, Peter 2.17 says, Honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. So you have that kind of um, bookend of honors, and then really firmly planted is fear God. The next verse talks about servants or slaves being subjected or putting themselves in submission, if you will, uh, with all fear, right? And so that's typical, not, not a problem. Translation started to move away from that idea when you get into the, the passage dealing with women. Because, you know, in our society, do we want women to fear their husbands? This is what Peter says. As they observe your pure conduct with fear. It's the very similar phrase to the servants. And, and so you, you have some translations that deal with, okay, maybe reverence, respect kind of ideas. We went with just being consistent. And sometimes you miss that if you, if you want to... I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but cater to the culture and uh, soften it a bit, you miss actually what Peter is saying, because it's not the only time he uses fear. He uses fear again in chapter 3, verse 6. Um, we're talking about Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children if you uh, do good, not fearing any intimidation. And then he talks again about fear in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their fear, 
and do not be troubled. And, and part, partly what we did is we translated it consistently because that's our kind of motto. But it opened up understanding that really for the preacher too, helping our, our congregants understand that you can put yourself in submission to another, whether that's the slave-master relationship or the women submitting to their husbands, not because of the master or the husband, but because you fear God. It starts there, that you can, you can submit to God in fear in a positive sense, and that you can submit in those relationships, whether it's the slave-master, husband-wife with fear, but then there's the other aspect of it, not fearing man, not fearing what they can do, their intimidations, things like that. And so simply by translating phobos uh, and the, the verb phobeo to fear, and, and that opens up, I think, a, a thought that the author has communicated that really our submission and subjection and things like that in relationships stem first and foremost with how we view God and how we fear God first and foremost, and then we can even, in our relationships, do the same. Yeah, so I guess in some, you, you could almost put it this way. If you fear the right one, mm-hmm. then you'd have no need to be afraid. Correct. And so you don't fear what they fear because you fear God in all those different ways. And, <clears throat> and yeah, that's where consistency comes out, and, and it's even easy to explain it to our people, isn't it? Where, where you don't have to say, well, if you revere God here and, and respect something there, and then you fear God, then you don't have to be afraid. It just, it just makes things clear exactly the way Peter wrote it. So you say it the way Peter said it in Greek, but we say it in English. And kind of along that line, you know, did we all figure out all these things ahead of time and then make sure that we secured them in the text? Sometimes we did. Uh, but right now, we're working on, Joe and I, particularly uh, an Old Testament commentary project together, and we're using the Legacy Standard Bible, and I sometimes go through it, and I say, whoa, there's this connection there. That's really good. I, I don't remember putting that in my notes. And then I go to my notes, and I go to Joe's notes, and I go to all of our notes, and it's not there. It's not there. We, we didn't think of it. And, and But now it is, because I put it there. Uh, but... <laughs> But, uh, but that's the key of what we did, which is we didn't know everything, but we knew the principles, which is give people what we see in Greek and Hebrew. And any connection that is in the Greek and Hebrew, they'll find it because it's there. So even if we don't know about it, we've secured it for them. And, and Fabas is a, is a really great example of that. Uh, Joe, talk to us about some more examples. Yeah, in, in the same vein of consistency and just thinking that the idea of consistency is that it brings out, it helps us to bring out the intent of the author, what the author wanted the readers to read, what the author wanted the hearers to hear. Uh, that's what we were trying to do, what we were trying to pursue. And if you think about Psalm 119, this is one of the acrostics where each of the stanzas is uh, alphabetized. So you have A, B, C, or alphabet, Gimel, Dalet, etc., through the end. And you get to the letter He, and the letter He is the Hebrew uh, um, way of making the verb a causative. So the author there wants you to understand that there's some kind of a causation happening in the action. 
And so you get to Psalm 119, verse 33 specifically, and that's the stanza with the letter hey. And each of the lines begins with a verb that has a hey in the beginning, which then indicates that there is a causation in the beginning of that line. And so listen to this, and you can, you'll immediately hear the, the word that is repeated, which is what the author wants you to hear. So he says, cause me to understand that I may observe your law. Verse 34. Verse 35. Cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. Cause my heart to incline to your testimonies. Cause my, ter- cause my eyes to turn away. Cause your word to be established for your slave. So you see this cause, cause, cause over and over and over coming out in the words of the psalmist. And the psalmist, then you begin to think about the theology of this. The psalmist is not asking God to save him. He's already saved, right? He's asking God to sanctify him. So he here is saying that God is playing a major role in sanctifying the person's, uh, the believer's life. And so you take this theology from the word cause, from the consistency that is being uh, repeated in each of the stanzas. And then you think about this theology on a bigger level, and you go to the New Testament, you think about Philippians 2, 12 and 13, and there it says that work out your salvation. So we're supposed to work out our salvation. Then verse 13, for it is God who works in you. So you work, and yet God works in Philippians 2, and you go to Psalm 119, and you get the exact same theology. He believes because he knows that he is supposed to live a holy life. And yet at the same time, he's appealing to God to cause this to be worked out in his life. And by having this consistent word repeated over and over and over, you see what the author wanted you to get from the text. Um, the acrostics is significant, and there's one point that this just tells you a little bit about the translation process that I had figured out a way to get all the lines of Psalm 119 to have all the same letters going through. And then Mark Zakovich is like, don't do that. <laughs> that doesn't even read well. And people memorize Psalm 119. What are you doing? And I was like, I, I work so hard. Like, uh, and no, and Mark was 100% right, as he always is. And uh, this is part of the team effort of translation, but it's also a reminder there's a delicate balance. We know that people memorize the scripture, and we don't want to change it so dramatically that now they're discouraged. Um, And and we want to make sure that that there is a legacy, that there is this reinforcement that the translation used long ago is our translation today. So we even retained or even put back in words that were used by the King James or the Tyndale translation even, just to make sure that everyone knew our Bible was their Bible. And the Bible doesn't change. And so there's a constancy of translation within that. But yeah, I mean, we did modify some things to bring things out. And, and sometimes it's not even uh, in the translation itself, but even in the layout of the translation, because LSB, one of its unique features is that every acrostic, of the Old Testament is designated in the text and now online. So it's not just Psalm 119, it's Lamentations, it's a Nahum. Joe, maybe maybe you should talk about that acrostic in Nahum a little bit and why it just cuts off all of a sudden. Yeah. Exegetical significance. Nahum is just fascinating. You know Nahum, that's uh, the prophecy against Nineveh. Uh, after jo- in Jonah, after Nineveh repents, then Nahum comes and Nineveh 
uh, Nahum prophesies another prophecy against Nineveh, and there Nineveh is destroyed. So the first chapter, you read it, and it's all about the wrath of God against the Ninevites. And uh, as you read through the chapter, you see that it's following an acrostic. Again, it's organized. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, you know, A, B, C, D, E. And the, the point of the acrostic, or one of its major points, is to give this order, the development, and then the holistic picture, that it starts at the beginning and it carries you through the end. That's what Psalm 119 does. It goes from the beginning to the end of the alphabet. And you get the full picture. But as you read Nahum 1, you see the acrostic begin, Aleph, Bed, Gimel, and it goes through, and you see it, and you're reading about the wrath of God against the Ninevites, and you see it develop through the alphabet, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the alphabet, it just, the alphabet just drops off. There's no more acrostic. There's no more development of that. And so you look at that, and you're wondering, what is going on here? Why does the alphabet just end right in the middle? And so you go to the portion of scripture where to the portion in Nahum where the alphabet drops off and you read that again and you see that okay so it's talking it says that God will completely destroy them and so you see that okay wow just like the alphabet abruptly ends so the life of the wicked abruptly and unexpectedly is destroyed and then you think about some of the other passages and you think about the the uh, the references in the New Testament, Luke 17, where it refers to the wicked and the lives of the wicked. They live, they eat, they get married, and then all of a sudden their lives end just like in the flood or just like in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see that brought out through the structure in the first chapter of Nahum because he wants you to see it in the content and then he wants you to see it in the structure. He just wants you to get it. He does not want you to miss that point. And you see that where you see the alphabet is completely cut off in the middle and make you wonder and stop and think, what is going on here? And you realize that that's the fate of the wicked. So the goal of the translation, again, is to bring out what is in the original language into English so that whatever we see in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, you see it too. And, and acrostics, they're not just neat and testify, of course, to the immaculate wisdom of God. I could never write an acrostic poem, but the Lord can in, in amazing ways. But there's exegetical, there's theological significance to that, that you can now bring out to your people because it's in their Bible too. And they can identify and observe it. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Joe. Just that the acrostic, the acrostic also speaks to the intent of the author, right? It's not we who add the acrostic. The acrostic is in the text. And that's what the author intended for the readers and for the hearers to see. Another feature of what you often would see in reading a Greek New Testament is all the Old Testament quotes blocked off. And so what we've tried to do in this translation is to match that so that everything you would see, like in the Nestle Elan 27 and 28 blocked off, will be in your New Testament as well. And all those marginal notes that tell you all those helpful cross-references with Old Testament texts, even allusions and such, we've tried to incorporate in the reference notes or even in block quotes in uh, your New Testament of the Legacy Standard Bible. So all that's laid out for you so that whatever you would see, again, that's the principle, whatever you would see in a Greek New Testament or a a Hebrew text, you have it in your English Bible. Um, Just some passages, because these guys are so professional. Uh, I told them, hey, we only have 35 minutes. We just got to go, 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 go. And they've done so many videos They know what that means, 
Uh, speaking of which, if you have further questions or want more insights, we've done a lot of videos. <laughs> we've probably said everything there is to say on those videos. So we invite you to watch those, and hopefully they're edifying to you and to your people. But they're so fast, we have like 30 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but they are fast, and let me just give some more examples and maybe just show you that these changes affect not just exceptional parts of Scripture, but things that you're familiar with and things that would help you. Abner, yeah, before go you ahead. go on, can yeah. you just – sorry to derail you. I want to remind the men and us that we didn't always agree, and that's when we appealed to the highest authority. That's right. Because there were times <laughs> after six hours of talking about the same word, we could not agree. Yeah. So there were strong opinions here. So there's some examples that I think would be fun for them to hear about yeah. what Pastor John did when you called him. Yeah. And we it, trust it, this, you faithfully communicated our opinions oh, to oh. him and not just. I, what, I, what I usually did on the phone is I said, you know, these guys, they had all these ideas. They're all wrong. Why don't you just say that, <laughs> Pastor John, will you just say that this is the right idea? No, I didn't say that. No, I, we tried, you know, here's the amazing thing. And, and Pastor John won't probably would not admit this or tell you it first off whenever i it's very strange whenever i called him he was driving he was just driving somewhere because he's so busy and here's what's funny i would talk to him about an issue and he would say oh yeah the greek word for that is this word it's like yeah it is he's driving (laughs) there's no greek text in front of him you know he just has it memorized and if it was me, I would say, I don't know what the Greek word is. I don't know. And then I crash. You know, that's what would happen. But this guy's driving, and, and he's reciting the Greek. And he's saying, well, yeah, and it's used this way in this other place. And, and, this, and it was amazing. You know, it, it, it just tells you what faithful exposition does to the heart and the mind. It really does ingrain God's word deeply on your heart. And, and that's the side I don't know if you all know about. Dr. MacArthur, but it's something that I saw, and it was a very big treasure to me. So one thing that was commented upon was the issue of teleos, of maturity, perfection in Hebrews. Talk to us about your insights on that, Pastor John. Well, I think teleos in Hebrews, essentially he's talking about salvation. Yeah. Yeah. I think the context demands that. Um, I mean, that's what you're driving at. Yeah, that's right. Because right? that's where the discussion. Right. Ended. Was it mature? Should it be a tr- transit <clears throat> maturity or completeness or perfection? And yeah. it, it plays a huge role because if you get that word wrong, you don't know whether you're talking about believers or non-believers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a very short version of what you told me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you told me I have to. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll try to. Well, speaking of which, we'll try to put all of these insights, in, we have put all these insights into notes, and one of the next projects, and you can pray for us, is to publish these notes online for everyone. So how many pages of notes did you do behind the translation? The initial note file, I think, was about seven to 8,000 pages, and then, and then there are these emails. Oh, man. And... And Joe and I had a lot of email exchanges, which was such a blessing because we're so like-minded. There's this myth about the LXX, you know, 70 translators in a room, and they all come out with the same translation. Well, this is not a myth. Joe and I would have, would have a, such symmetry of our translation. It would be the same, 
And it would have the same reasons even, with the same cross-references for the reasons. It was amazing. Mark got really jealous because he's like, now why is Abner more like a brother to Joe than, <laughs> than me? But, um, but, but it was amazing. And we had these emails, and they're not short emails. Like, what do you think about this one word? It's like 40 issues in the email, and, and we color-coded them so we knew we could keep track. So Joe would respond in, black and I would respond in red and then he would respond in green and then I would respond in purple and then he would respond in yellow and then I would respond in black with a yellow highlight and then he would respond in green with a red highlight and then and we'd go back and forth and these emails just went on and on I think we had in three months like 7,000 emails so if you add those in it gets pretty high in the page count of and some of it's not necessary to put on the notes, but there are a lot of notes out there, and we hope it's profitable for you. Um, but let me give you some examples of just what was preached here at Shepherd's Conference and how the Legacy Standard Bible could even help that. Just to show you, these are common passages. So last night we were blessed to hear H.B. Charles in 2 Timothy 3. And one thing I was observing and I wanted to point out, something so simple. You have all the issues of wickedness, like Janus and Jambres opposing Moses. And then in verse 10, it says in LSB, but it doesn't do this in other translations. It just says these simple words, but you. Total contrast. And then it talks about how Timothy is supposed to persevere and such, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Then verse 14, but you. Now do you start to hear the contrast, yes? Second Timothy 4, preach the word. And you know, though, that men will turn to myths, and they will get from bad to worse. And then in verse 5, but you. And in all the trans, I checked a bunch of translations last night just to confirm this. They have you, however, you on the other hand, but as for you. They have all different kinds of translations, but in Greek it's the same phrase. Because that's exactly how the text breaks down. So we wanted it to match exactly what was there. Or Joshua 1, Phil Johnson preached on that wonderful text, be strong and courageous. That phrase happens a lot in Hebrew. It's all backed up to that phrase and really earlier in Deuteronomy where it's reiterated, but we try to make sure that the phrase be strong and courageous, whenever those two Hebrew words were paired in parallelism, it's maintained. So you don't have be strong and increase your might or something like that, like the NASB or ESV has. It's always strength, courage. If you see that phrasing, you know it goes back to be strong and courageous. Or Acts 5, I think Nate preached on that this morning. And it talks about how the people, the disciples, laid at the apostles' feet their gifts. They laid them at their feet, tithemi. And then Peter says to Ananias, why did you lay this evil deed on your heart? Same word. Why? Because when you lay something at the apostles' feet, it's because you originally laid it upon your heart. The inside goes to the outside. Luke is making that wordplay there. So that's just examples from texts that were preached. That translation matters. Precision matters in translation, and it can help you. It can help you in your preaching. Uh, just one quick thing, and then I need to wrap some things up. But in, in the translation, we also added notes. And these notes are designed to equip you, to give you another tool in your tool belt to help preach. Uh, sometimes a text will say in the New Testament, hey, this word Lord in the Old Testament is translated as Yahweh, so that you now know this word Lord is Yahweh, and that's a helpful connection. But in Ruth 3, 
it talks about, and four, it talks about how Ruth is a woman who will attain excellence. Excellence, chayl in, in Hebrew. And you say, why does that matter? Think about Proverbs 31. An excellent wife who can find, yes? And there is supposed to be a connection between the two. But here's what's interesting. In Ruth chapter 2, it says, Boaz is a man of, is a mighty man of excellence because it's the same word about Ruth. But what we also notice is that that same phrase is used of people like Gideon or even Jephthah negatively, ironically, in the Old Testament. And so we have a cross-reference in the footnote that says, but you need to cross-reference this passage. And that way, you can see that Boaz is in contrast, deliberate contrast, with people like Jephthah and in deliberate connection with a person like Ruth. And you can connect everything together, and the footnote helps you to bridge that gap. Another one is like in 1 Samuel 15. We, we often hear about God changing his mind, God regretting. <coughs> but here's what's fascinating. In 1 Samuel 15, if you translate it consistently, it'll say God regretted making Saul king. God regretted making Saul king. But in the middle of the passage, it says this. Samuel says this. God is not a man that he should regret. So all of a sudden, now you realize, even though it looks like God looked like he was regretting, he does never regret. He never regrets. And that's phenomenological language versus what is true of the nature of God. And what we did is, in every case where that root is used in such a manner, we actually have a footnote that cross-references back to that passage so that you can bring your people there. And so they know you're not making it up. It's right in their text. It's a resource for them right in their text for you to guide them. These are the kinds of things that we try to do. So you might be wondering, hey, wow, there's a lot of insights here. Uh, Did you write them down? Not only did we put them in the notes that will be published online, Lord willing, in the next year or so, but we also came up with a devotional, a 365-day devotional, which just lays a lot of these things out in a way that people would just enjoy reading and they could read with their Bible And that will also come out pretty soon as well. Well, these men, whenever I think of all these men here, uh, my heart is just filled with with great gratitude. Uh, It is, some people wonder, did you really go through every verse to translate the Legacy Standard Bible? Yes, we did. Every single one. I mean, it wasn't like we skipped around or only went to our favorite passages and control find and find, you know, Lord, change to Yahweh, find do laws. It wasn't like that. If only. So the, uh, no, you, it was verse by verse, word by word, phrase by phrase, intense. I mean, sometimes you even had Microsoft telling us, stop working on the file. You're overheating our servers. You've got to stop now or you'll lose the corruption of the information. Um, and you have Tyndale moments where, you know, Tyndale lost his New Testament. Our equivalent was when, I remember this, this was a terrible day, uh, where, the corruption actually added a comma in every space. <laughs> I was about to cry. Because, uh, you know, you can't just say delete all commas because you need some of them. <laughs> you know? uh, and the Lord just took us through all of that. And so there's just this great camaraderie here. And uh, we worked with 316 Publishing. And I just like to bring those brothers up. Gary and Chris, come on up. Because I know that they have something to say and something to give and do for all these dear men here.
joy to be here this afternoon and to be back at, thank you, it's a joy to be back at ShepCon. Would you agree? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, today we've heard some stories from these men, and I just want to take a few moments and give you a few other people uh, that have been involved in this process. And one of them is Pike Lambeth from the Lockman Foundation. Pike, if you could come up. Here's Pike. Pike. Pike was integral in getting this project off the ground. He fixed the comma problem, by the way. (laughs) Thank you, Abner. And that's just a testimony of Pike's amazing skill sets that God has given him in this whole world of Bible translation. Pike is one of only a few people, probably, and the whole world that can do what he does on the back end side of Bible translation. We all reap tremendous benefits from the work that this man does. And with the Lockman Foundation allowing these men to have the entire NASB files to work from, that was a tremendous gift that allowed the LSB to come into fruition. So, Pike, today we just want to say thank you. Thank you to the Lockman Foundation. (laughs) And it's our pleasure to give you a special limited edition handy size LSB. (laughs) Thank you, Pike. Also, I've been asked to say something about these men on the translation team. So just to backtrack a bit, this whole project started because there was an idea of what it might look like, and then there was a meeting in Pastor MacArthur's office, and that meeting was the first time I met Dr. Abner Chow, and Gary Kim was part of that meeting. Also, Mark MacArthur was a part of that meeting, and Pike Lambeth was a part of that meeting. We had that meeting, and then as the conversations continued, at a shepherd's conference, Gary and I had some high-level meetings in a Honda Accord parked on a side street (laughs) with Pike of the Lockman Foundation. And it was shortly after where the contractual agreement was established and the files were released. But I really had only met Abner. And we had several comments and conversations with Abner at the beginning. But then these uh, videos that you've all heard of and many of you have seen, that was the first time I got to meet the rest of these men. And what I saw was a translation team of one mind. That these men, they're all like-minded in their love for God's word. And the high level of God's word, the authority of the scripture, and just to see how well they all got along. Just as someone looking off camera, because it wasn't like, and then they got on camera, hey, we love each other. No, these guys love each other. You see the brotherhood among them, and that was a joy to experience. So thank you, men, for your diligence for holding to the task at hand because we know it was laborious 
It was a lot of hours, and you crossed the finish line. So thank you. We're all going to benefit far beyond our years. The LSB is going to continue on because God's word is eternal. And so today we want to bless all of you also with a special edition of the LSB Handy Size. Okay, and while Chris is while Chris is passing that out, I just have a few words to say uh, to our pastor John. And I think this is going to be hard for me. Uh, Forty years ago, I was a little junior hire here at Grace Church. Um, my parents emigrated from South Korea, um, and though South Korea was a democratic nation, our house was ruled like a North Korean dictatorship. And it's because I was forced to come to Grace Church every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, and hear Pastor John. No choice, okay? (laughs) On top of that, every Sunday my parents would buy the tapes, right, from the previous week, and we'd have to listen to it at home while my mom's cooking dinner. She's cleaning the house. I literally heard John MacArthur almost every single day. I was able to have a friendship with his son, Mark, and that was a tremendous blessing. Um, Pastor John, through that relationship, was a friend to our family. We spent time together. He came over to our home for dinner. He even took us, I don't know if you remember this, you took us in your old conversion van with the shag carpet on the walls, drove down to... Koreatown, and had Korean barbecue together. We made our own LSB Thank you. Wow, that's first class. <laughs> hey, if we could all squeeze in and we get a picture. Mike, if you don't mind coming up too. I think, I think I'm okay. All right. All right. Thank you, man. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Gary. Um, that was amazing, wasn't it? Thanks to Gary and. uh, all the ways the Lord's used him and his brother John, who wanted to be with us, but I don't think John's here, is he, Gary? He, yeah, he's been having some back issues, faithful pastor, and uh, yeah, it's uh, amazing how the Lord providentially brings the years together, and all of a sudden, he's the guy we need to publish, and and um, the Lachman Foundation is the is the place where we need the permission to do this and the translators are here and really to do this in a year the entire bible is just really astonishing so we, we give all the praise to the lord so enjoy your lsb spread the word thank you mm-hmm. thank you